And we are going to start immediately with, uh, with uh, 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 Mr. Eric Goldstein from uh, Human Rights Watch in Washington, D.C. He is a deputy director at, uh, at uh, Human Rights Watch. And he will talk to us about the, uh, the uh, human rights and uh, the, the democratic transition, the transition itself, and, uh, and the new constitution. Thank you very uh, much. Do you want to talk from there? Yeah, I'll talk from here. First of all, I'm delighted to be here, delighted to spend an entire day on Tunisia. It very rarely happens in Washington. It happens in Paris sometimes, and of course in the Middle East, but not here. Um, I, I am going to uh, try to give, an, not an overview, but touch on some general points about where we are on human rights in this moment. And fortunately, my co-panelists will cover freedom of expression and women's rights. And so I am not going to talk much about those issues um, because they'll do a better job of it. I think uh, we get in my business asked all the time, well, are things better now than they were under Ben Ali? Um, I'll answer that at the end. <laughs> uh, or are, how are things going now two years after the revolution compared to two years after the overthrow of Ceausescu? or uh, the dictatorship in Portugal or in Greece? Those are good questions. I'm not sure I know enough about those revolutions to answer that question. But it's clear that underlying the question is the fact, the observation, that things are still a mess. They're, they're uncertain. They're volatile in Tunisia. Um, and I'm going to talk about four, provide four snapshots, four, four topics, um, and talk about just how volatile, how, how unclear the situation is. Um, uh, I will talk a little bit about the proposed constitution. I will talk a little bit about the security sector, uh, about the judicial sector, and then about civil society and the relations between the state and civil society. And then I'll uh, conclude with a few observations. I think the first thing to note is that it is still in a transitional, we're in a transitional stage politically. Um, and there have not been any general elections in Tunisia since the revolution. Unlike Egypt, Egypt has had generally free and fair parliamentary elections and a free and fair presidential elections. In Tunisia, we've had an assist, uh, a constituent assembly elected in free and fair elections, but whose mandate is limited to uh, adopting, uh, drafting a constitution, organizing general elections that have been postponed and we don't yet know when they will be, um, and also appointing an interim government. Uh, and this raises a number of issues in terms of uh, human rights uh, because you have a government with a limited mandate. And before that, during 2011, you had an unappointed interim government. Um, and obviously in Tunisia, there are all kinds of repressive laws, um, besides, we'll talk about the Constitution separately, but repressive laws and things to attend to and, and uh, demands that laws be abrogated, that practices be reformed and so forth, but a government that does not have the same legitimacy as an elected government. During 2011, the interim, that is the previous unelected government, assigned a number of international treaties. Uh, it ratified the Rome Statute on the International Criminal Court. Uh, it lifted reservations to the Convention Against the Discrimination, for the Elimination of Discrimination of All Forms Against Women. Um, and it assigned the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. These are uh, things that, of course, makes my organization, Human Rights Watch, very happy, but at the same time, I recognize that 
these actions were taken by a government that didn't have electoral legitimacy. Um, I will, uh, let me start by talking about the Constitution a little bit. Uh, and there's a lot more on our website, uh, especially comparing the second draft of the Constitution, which was uh, revealed, was, was unveiled in December of 2012 to the earlier version, and Razi mentioned it. It, it was first, uh, uh, it was revealed, it was unveiled in uh, July 2012. Now, there are a number of improvements between the drafts. Uh, is, is there, uh, for example, the elimination of um, the criminalization of offenses to the sacred, to that which is sacred. Um, there is another thing that we praise, which is the elimination of the criminalization of any form of a normalization with Zionism and the Zionist state, an article that we considered extremely vague and potentially uh, an impediment to freedom of expression. Um, I, uh, we also raised some concerns, though, about the new draft uh, having in its Article 15 uh, kind of a conditioning of the respect for international conventions. And now Dr. Matar in the morning referred to this, and I think that uh, he was a little bit too lenient with the way that it's worded because the current draft, as I understand it, says respect for international conventions is compulsory if they do not contravene this constitution. So it's one of those phrases that takes with one hand, gives with, with one hand and takes with another. The constitution as it's currently drafted has also guarantees that we consider inadequate uh, for guarantees of the independence of the judiciary. And I won't go into details here, but I will talk a little bit later about the, uh, the judiciary. Now, the, uh, I've heard a number of people in Tunisia say, gosh, you know, this is, after all this work, we're, we have a draft that is worse than the 1959 Constitution. Why don't we just go back to that? Now, here I'm talking about the, the, uh, the, the aspects of the Constitution dealing with human rights. I'm not talking now about the issues of separation of power, parliamentary versus presidential system, but in terms of basic rights, some people are nostalgic for the 1959 Constitution. Well, one thing that that tells us, reminds us, is that the Constitution isn't everything. You know, this is the 1959 Constitution is what Ben Ali had used, I mean, it was in effect during all the years of the dictatorship. So uh, ensuring human rights is not only about getting the Constitution right, it's partly about that. Um, look at, well, I'll talk a little bit about the security sector, and uh, we kind of alluded to it this morning in the discussion of Salafists. Um, and there is clearly a phenomenon in Tunisia that's becoming more and more common of political violence carried out by groups of individuals who from their appearances uh, seem to be Salafi. Sometimes people say that the old members of the old regime, the Falul, are manipulating these people. I have no information. I don't think anybody has the smoking gun that proves this. But there are attacks of this nature uh, taking place, and there is clearly uh, a laxness on the part of the authorities in investigating these cases. And we went out and documented cases we found individuals who had been attacked by these groups, cultural figures, civil society figures, people on campuses. They filed complaints with the authorities. They went to the police. They 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 described the assailants, and there was no follow-up. They were never and they were never um, uh, uh, contacted by the police. There was and so there's clearly a problem here. 
Um, and uh, some people attribute this to Anahda being complacent toward these people. Um, and, uh, but but there, there's, a, there, there's a problem that makes people very uneasy uh, in Tunisia. And I should say that uh, political violence is not limited to Salafis. Uh, there are secular parties or groups of people who have uh, uh, attacked the offices in many cities of Anahda. Uh, there are political parties that have brawled with these leagues for the protection of the revolution. So it's not, it shouldn't be thought of exclusively as an Islamist phenomenon. Um, I did, uh, when I was in Tunisia in February, talked, I asked a poli- uh, the head of uh, 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 Sûreté Nationale in Tunis, uh, uh, Greater Tunis, about this and whether he agreed with the criticism that the police was being very lax. And he said, I, t- to my surprise, I, I agree with you that uh, the police are confused, they're not, uh, they sit with their hands folded in, in many cases, not under my supervision here in Tunis because here I lay down the law, but what he described was a situation where the security sector is in, in a kind of a transition and it's not there yet. On the one hand, you have all the old professional structures within the, the you, you have professional police, um, you have at the same time now a very different leadership, a politically appointed leadership until Last week, it was Ali Larid of the Nahda Party, who was Minister of Interior. Um, and you have also, um, to some extent, and, uh, uh, the uh, elements of the old regime who are extremely powerful within the, the, the security apparatus and are, um, to some extent, we don't know to what extent, still there, pulling strings and so forth. And so it, 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 there are many factors, and I can't list them all here, why the police sometimes are not acting, uh, are not, uh, not, not doing their job. Uh, and this leads to a, se- a sense of sec- insecurity. Um, and I think that um, it, it, you know, it varies very much from one part of the country to another. But it is part of the climate of insecurity. Uh, it, is, it does fuel uh, militant groups who feel that they can act with impunity in certain cities. In some areas, they're not present at all, but in other areas, they, they, run, they run small towns, and that's a, that's a big concern. Um, another aspect of the security sector challenge is managing demonstrations. Um, uh, anyone who goes to Tunis can't help but see big demonstrations uh, on, almost on any day, uh, especially in front of the Ministry of Interior, which still is on the main street of town. Um, it's uh, the only country I know of where the Ministry of Interior is on the equivalent of the Champs-Élysées. And so it's obviously a great place to hold a demonstration. Um, and uh, if you go and watch these demonstrations, it won't be long before you see the police beating people up. And you know, I, I, I see it every time that I go there. And these are old practices that take a long time to change. Um, I also, in this my last visit, visited uh, prisons and interviewed a lot of prisoners. And for the first time, I was interviewing just common criminal suspects and not political suspects because there were practically no political suspects left in Tunisia. Uh, and they described also that they, you know, getting arrest means getting slapped around almost without exception and being forced to sign a confession or a statement of some kind without being allowed to read it. These practices continue. And um, managing demonstrations is also a huge thing for the police because until, as long as Ben Ali was in power, demonstrations were not allowed. 
So their job consisted of just basically beating up and chasing away the few people who tried to gather. But now you have big unruly demonstrations day after day. It's something that they've never had to manage. They have no training. They don't have the proper equipment yet. It's a long, it's going to be a long process. And these are demonstrations that are very often very animated. People uh, uh, sit and block traffic. People th sometimes some people throw stones and so forth. So it's a very challenging new environment for police uh, to to have to manage this. But it's a top priority for the for for the for the authorities uh, to allow people. It's more now instead of just suppressing demonstrations, it's about managing demonstrations, allowing people to exercise their right uh, in a way that that, that comply, complies with the laws, which are much in the process of being revised in the direction of allowing more demonstrations, not requiring permissions that are never granted and so forth. Um, another concern just in passing on security sector is when you're out there in Tunis and looking at uh, demonstrations, you see plainclothes individuals carrying en blanche, uh, carrying sticks and other kinds of crude weapons who are clearly working with the uniformed police going in and out of the crowd and so forth. Um, and that, I think, breeds insecurity and, and raises questions about who's in, in charge and uh, whether the police are being held accountable. On the judiciary, I want to mention two things. One is well, the, it's kind of the obvious point that you can tell judges that they're independent starting today, but it's going to take years for that actually to settle in because, um, first of all, they're civil servants and they're concerned about their job security. But also, if you've been uh, ruling in courts for years where your, um, your verdicts were dictated to you or there was not very much effort to uh, uh, reach your verdict on the basis of the facts presented in court, it takes a lot of time to get up to the job. And to give an example of that, during the revolution there were, um, I think, about 136 Tunisians who were killed as the result of uh, security force gunfire. And there's a lot of demands and expectations that the police who are behind these killings or directly involved in these killings will be held accountable. Well, there have been trials uh, since 2011 in military courts uh, of these individuals, and these trials have put uh, uh, in the dock both senior officials, including President, uh, ousted President Ben Ali in absentia, but other top security people, as well as the foot soldiers, the guys who are actually uh, the accused uh, shooters uh, in, in the cities throughout the country. But if you look at the trials at the, and how they were conducted, you realize the huge problems of the justice system. First of all, the justices, the prosecutors, never before had to deal with these kinds of cases of, you know, of, of, of investigating security force uh, uh, gunfire because the police were above the law. So you have that. You have the collection of evidence. And at these trials, there was almost no ballistic evidence presented. Um, it was said that Tunisian sol uh, uh, police had uh, a register so that every gun that was given to a policeman uh, was registered, every bullet that was given was registered, and you had to account for any missing bullets. These kinds of things are what leads to accountability. But in these trials, this never came up. Uh, the, the, this information was not available. Was it not available because somebody in the Ministry of Interior was blocking it? Or because, as the ministry said, well, gee, you know, a number of police stations in the country where these archives are kept were burned during the revolution, so the evidence is gone. There are other big, contribution, uh, big contradictions in the verdicts so far because there have been uh, th 
three or three, four cases so far before the military courts. One of the contradictions is that the, the policemen who shot are being... Okay, slow down a bit. All right. Um, sorry about that. Uh, one of the contradictions is that the policemen who opened fire were charged with basically homicide or non-premeditated murder. And yet at the same trials, the top security people were convicted of basically being of, of ordering the murder. So on the one hand, they were convicted of murdering, of ordering all of this, and then the policemen were treated as if their crime... Uh, their self-defense, that they were basically overwhelmed by these protesters and shot partly in self-defense, was sustained. So how do you reconcile this? And then what's going to likely happen is that at the appeals level, some of these verdicts are going to be overruled, and many Tunisians will feel like justice has again been denied. I'm just citing this case, and we've done a number of uh, we've done some reports on this and are continuing to monitor these trials to show how difficult it is to suddenly erect a functioning and independent and thorough judicial system. And that is partly what people there are, are hungry for, because they haven't had it. There were these serious crimes during the revolution, and of course going back in time, uh, uh, that, that they want to be addressed through the judicial system. There is now a, a draft law on transitional justice uh, that has yet to be adopted by the National Constituent Assembly. It's a good law in our view. Um, it sets up a truth commission. It sets up a special criminal chamber within the, uh, the, the court system. Um, there are some questions about how it will operate. But um, you know, again, the issue of transitional justice, accountability for past crimes, is very much still on the agenda. And there are a lot of questions about whether the judiciary in Tunisia is yet up to the task. Um, there's also the issue with respect to the judiciary of a legal vacuum. There was a law on governing how judges are appointed, demoted, transferred, and uh, that law has been was suspended. Uh, and the new law that was supposed to guarantee greater judicial independence that did not get implemented. There was a kind of void, and the Minister of Justice, who is considered a hardliner of Anahda, Nuruddin Bahiri, used that occasion to dismiss 75 judges. Um, and they were not, they, 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 the whole process got everybody up in arms because there was no accountability, there was no clarity, transparency in the process, and so forth. I don't think that it has yet been resolved. Those judges are still dismissed. But it raised the question of how do you build a ju judiciary um, that, where the judges uh, can feel independent, not just told you are now in part of an independent judiciary, but they need to feel independent in, their, in, their, in, in the decisions that they make in the courtrooms. And so um, the issue of uh, control over this particular law has now become a kind of a political uh, uh, football. Finally, um, the other issue I wanted to talk about was uh, trans transparency, uh, human rights, organi our organization and NGOs. And just to give you a few anecdotes um, the, of the huge difference between now and, and during the era of Ben Ali. First of all, no foreign human rights organization could have a legal presence in Tunisia. And since the revolution, most of us have opened legal offices 
I have two people who are working full-time openly for Human Rights Watch without any fear or concern. No, uh, in the old days, uh, you know, people were followed and witnesses were intimidated and so forth. When we held press conferences in the past, it was always an open question whether the police would allow us to proceed. Now we just, you know, the only thing we need to do is pay for the, with our credit card for the room at the hotel and that's it. We have a press conference with no impediments at all. Um, there's no cases I am aware of today of human rights organizations, researchers being kept out of Tunisia. In the past, Reporters Without Borders and other organizations were often turned away at the airport or not, um, including journalists as well. Another breakthrough for us is that for the last five years of the Ben Ali presidency, we were negotiating on access to prisons with them, and we were just spinning our wheels. They had promised it. It never happened. But the minute the revolution came, we asked to go in, and they allowed us to visit prisons. Um, I just went back and visited uh, police jails. There's a spirit of cooperativeness that extends across the political spectrum in the government. Uh, we have access to ministers who are members of ANAHTA, uh, to the presidency, uh, and this is just in terms of international organizations, but uh, also local NGOs um, ha have a lot more uh, access. They're visiting prisons. Their freedom to operate is, is incomparable to what it used to be. Uh, just to give an example of um, the relations with the Constituent Assembly, the draft law on transitional justice was re re uh, presented only after extensive consultations with civil society, uh, including a kind of a caravan where uh, they went to 19 regions of the country, I think, and sought input on the law. And, and usually you would think that NGOs would be complaining about a law like this, but in my sense is that there, you know, there's still many small criticisms, but people are generally happy with the process, and that it's something that absolutely never happened under Ben Ali. So having given you these snapshots um, on the, the writing of the Constitution, the security sector, and the judicial sector, and sort of the, the new atmosphere for human rights organizations to function, and, the, and uh, um, you know, what is the balance sheet uh, on human rights? I think it's, it's unquestionably better than it was under Ben Ali. I, I, you know, there, there are people in Tunisia who think things have gotten worse. Uh, and I think that they, you know, they might live in an area where there's less security, where there are, you know, Salafi groups who seem to set down the law. And I, you know, I, I, I completely understand that. And I don't, I don't think that those people who are saying that are necessarily, you know, sympathetic to the old regime. There's been a, a, a decline in, 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 in security for, for a lot of people, and they're concerned about that. But I think overall things are, 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 are much better. Um, I think going forward things will continue to be quite messy uh, and uneven for years. Um, the, the reform of the sectors I describe is going to take a, a very long time, but uh, I, like some of the earlier speakers, remain optimistic, and I think that one reason, uh, and it's been cited before here, is that Tunisia now has a political life, and it has a civil society life. And uh, the, uh, you know, the, there's the Nahda, but Nahda is one party among many. There's a lot of pushback. Parties got punished in the last elections. They got reformed. Uh, the Nahda is uh, now showing that it, too, is a party with 
different tendencies and it, it might fracture like some of the other parties and that's what political life is about. And there's pushback from the political uh, sector and there's pushback from the civil society sector. So, uh, you know, in my opinion, and I'm not speaking as Human Rights Watch, I'm, more, I'm less concerned about Tunisia becoming a theocracy than it becoming a country that's hobbled by kind of parliamentary paralysis and a weak government because of the proliferation of parties and the inability, uh, partly due to polarization that's been described here, uh, to form a government that can, that can rule in, 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 um, in a co cohesive way. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Eric, for your assessment of the democratic transition in Tunisia, uh, from your standpoint, of course. And now let's move to the next speaker, who will talk to us about freedom of the press in the new Tunisia under the Islamist-dominated uh, government. And our next speaker is indeed Naziha Rajiba. She's also known as Um Ziyad. She's a 2009 International Press Freedom Awardee and one of the most critical and respected journalists and rights defenders in Tunisia. Uh, as a former editor of the online news journal Kalima and co-founder of the Freedom of Expression group called the Observatoire de la Liberté de la Presse, she has been the target of government intimidation and harassment for a long time uh, and constantly during President Ben Ali's 23 years of, of rule. She's currently one of the top critics of the Islamist-led government and particularly the leader of the Nada party, Rashad Ghanoushi, who is increasingly accused in the Tunisian media of planning to turn Tunisia into an Islamist republic and being behind the unprecedented wave of political violence which led to the assassination on February the 6th of a prominent opposition figure, we talked about him earlier on, Chakri Balaid. In December 2002, Ms. Rajiba launched with a group of Tunisian rights defenders a new NGO called Vigilance for Democracy and Civil State, widely known as uh, Yaqada. Thank you. Well, it's your turn, <laughs> please. Uh. Shukran. أشكر المركز أشكر التونسيين والتونسيات الذين يعيشون في الخارج والذين لم ينسوا البلاد في هذا الظرف الدقيق وأشكركم أنتم أصدقاء تونس لأنكم تهتمون بهذا البلد الجميل وهو بالفعل يستحق الاهتمام ليس فقط لأنه جميل ولكن خاصة لأنه سيكون إن شاء الله النموذج الأول الناجح لبناء ديمقراطية في منطقة العربية الإسلامية الأخ نجيب تحدث عن ماضية كنت من قدماء المحاربين كما يقال الآن أنا أبدأ حياة جديدة أنا صبية إذن وأواصل النضال وأنا من الناجين القلائل من مثلث برميد الذي مثلته الترويكا أي أنني من المناظلين القلائل الذين لم يلتحقوا بالسلطة وبقيت في إطار المجتمع المدني لأن ثورتنا بحاجة إلى الاستكمال إذن أصحاف في تونس أبدأ بشيء وجيز من التاريخ وليس من باب الشوفينية أن أقول كما قال غازي أشياء 
تبين أن تونس سباقة ورائدة أول جريدة نشرت في تونس لما حالة كمت الرائد الرسمي كانت في 1860 أليس كذلك سيد علي يعني قبل الاستعمار بعد ذلك تأسست عشرات الجرائد واختفت لتعود لتظهر من جديد بأسماء أخرى أو لا تظهر ولكن الصحافة في تونس مسيرة مستمرة وقد اقترنت قصتها بقصة تونس البلد تونس الصحافة اقترنت قصتها بقصة تونس البلد قصة فيها كثير من التناقضات من الخصومات والخيانات من المحبة أيضا ومن النضالات تونس واجهت الاستعمار بالصحافة بالكلمة لم تعرف تونس الكفاح المسلح إلا في آخر عهد الاستعمار التجأت إليه في آخر مع دكتاتورية بورقيبة ودكتاتورية بن علي والحقيقة أن بورقيبة كان أفضل لأنه كان يقرأ قبل أن يعاقب الصحفيين أما بن علي فقد كان يمارس العقاب الاستباقي وحينئذ فكانت للصحافة صولات وجولات في مكافحة الدكتاتورية وأنا سمعت هذا الصباح أن ثورة تونس كانت ثورة ثورة الفقراء والعاطلين عن العمل وأضيف لقد كانت أيضا ثورة المتعطشين إلى الحرية أنا ذهبت إلى سيدي بوزيد بعد يومين من حرق البعزيزي نفسه واستجوبت الشبان الذين كانوا يخرجون للشوارع ويقومون بالثورة ولم أجدهم جياعا كما يشاع فيهم كثير من العاطلين على العمل ولهم حاجات وتطلعات اقتصادية وهذا طبيعي ولكن لهم أيضا تطلعات سياسية وتوق إلى الحرية وإلى أن يعيشوا مثل ما يعيش الشباب في بقية بلدان العالم المتحضر ولا لعلني لا أبالغ كثيرا إذا قلت إن الصحافة ساهمت بقصة وافر في التمهيد لقيام هذه الثورة فقد واكبت جميع التحركات العمالية وخاصة التحركات في الحوض المنجبي عام 2008 كانت تلك الإرهاصات الأولى للثورة التي انفجرت في 14 جانفي أمر الآن إلى المشهد الإعلامي في بعيد الثورة منذ قليل قال الأستاذ غازي أنه يتحفظ على الربيع العربي العبارة أنا أيضا أتحفظ عليها ولكن لعلي لا أتحفظ على ربيع الصحافة التونسية لأنه فعلا كان ربيعا وربيع لا يعني دائما الأزهار ولا الثمار على كل حال في تونس الثمار تكون في الصيف وليس في الربيع الربيع يعني أيضا الزوابع والعواصف ويعني بعض أزمات الحساسية إلى إلى آخره كل هذا عرفته الصحافة بعد مباشرة بعد الثورة انطلقت الأقلام والألسنة والكاميرات من عقالها ورأينا فوضى قد تسميها الآن ساكونداليزا رايس خلاقة بكل ما كان يعنى في هذه الثورة الفوضى 
من إيجابيات وسلبيات لأنه فعلا كان في هذا الانفجار الإعلامي إيجابيات وسلبيات كثيرة أستعرض بسرعة الإيجابيات عدد لا يحصى من الجرائد ظهر والأخرى غيرت لونها يعني كانت تمدح وتسبح بحمد بن علي فإذا بها تمدح الثورة والثوريين وتستضيف من كانت تسبهم في السابق من المعارضين وقد نالني شرف الاستضافة في هذه الجرائد وهذه القنوات وإذا كذلك القنوات لبست ثوب الحرية الجديد هذا كان شيئا جميلا وأنا شخصيا راقبت بدون أي حقد على السلوكات السابقة لاحظت كيف تأقلم الصحفيون حتى أقلام العبيد تحولت إلى أقلام سيدة وإلى أقلام تفرض كلمتها وتساهم في بناء المشهد الإعلامي التونسي الجديد كان في هذا انفلات طبعا وكان انفلاتات يعني منها ما هو فظيع ودعوني أذكر بانفلات قناة نسمة لما عرضت ذلك الفيلم الكرتوني الإيراني بيرسيبوليس الذي فيه بنية تعارك الذات الإلهية فهيجت علينا السلفيين وأخرجتهم إلى الشوارع وتأثر الرأي العام بذلك ويقال أن النهضة حصدت 15% من الأصوات بفضل بين ظفرين ذلك الانفلات وبفضل ذلك التسرع في تملك المشهد بأكمله في حين أن الحكمة كانت تتطلب تملك المشهد بحكمة حتى لا ينقلب السحر على السحر كذلك رأينا دعوات على الهواء مباشرة لاغتيال رئيس الوزراء الأول محمد الغنوشي رأينا كل هذا ولكي تقع محاولة السيطرة على هذه الفوضى أنشأت الدولة هيئة مستقلة لإصلاح الإعلام والاتصال ظهرت في في نوفمبر 2011 عهد بها إلى الأخ كمال العبيدي وعضده في ذلك الكثير من الصحفيين والصحفيات والنشطاء والقضاة المؤمنين بجدية قضية حرية التعبير والحقيقة أني اعتذرت عن المشاركة في ولكني واكبتها بدليل أني أتحدث عنها وسأواصل الدفاع عنها إذن جاءت لتحاول تنظيم المشهد الإعلامي في أفق انتخابات 23 أكتوبر ولكن لم يأخذ بنصائح هذه الهيئة كثير من الجهات ودخلنا المشهد الانتخابي بفوضى إعلامية عارمة ساهمت في ظهور النتائج التي وإن كنت لا لا أرفضها تماما ولكن أقول أنه كان بإمكانها أن تكون أفضل الآن سأتحدث عن الحكومة الشرعية وكيف أنها تستغل شرعيتها 
لتحاول الحد من الحريات أو حتى إلغائها إذا وجدت لذلك سبيلا ولكن أحب في الأول أن أنبه السادة السامعين إلى شيء مهم أنا لا أهاجم الإسلاميين ولا أدعو إلى استئصالهم ولا أكرههم كنت أخفي بعض أبنائهم لما يطاردهم بوليس وأتعرض لخطر محقق كنت أكتب أدافع عنهم ولكن اليوم لن أسمح لهم بأن يفتكوا منا حلمنا بالحرية والديمقراطية الذي حلمنا به قبل الثورة بكثير من عهد بورقيبة من الثمانينات وفي جريدة الرأي تحديدا التي أوقفها بن علي من ذلك التاريخ التأمت مجموعة فيها الرئيس المؤقت منصف المرزوقي وفيها الكثيرون من الوجوه السياسية المعروفة الآن على الساحة في الحكومة أو في المعارضة وكنا نتحدث عن مشروع الدولة المدنية ودولة القانون المؤسسات إذا مهما كانت الحصة أو النسبة الانتخابية التي فازت بها النهضة وهي كما سبق أن ذكر ليست بالنسبة التي تسمح لهم بتملك الثورة وتحويل وجهاتها إذا أحدثكم عن محاولات الالتفاف على حرية الإعلام في تونس هذا تم أولا على مستوى التسميات هي ترويكا ولكن النهضة تستأثر بتسمية من تراهم خادمين لمشروعها بالتطميع أو بالتخويف على رأس الإعلام العمومي ولقد رأينا من المشاهد المضحكة أن الشركاء في الحكم يصدرون بيانات احتجاج على هذه التسميات كما أنهم لو لم يكونوا شركاء في الحكم يعني أن النهضة تنفرد وقد ذهبت إلى أبعد من هذا فنصبت الاعتصامات أمام دار التلفزيون وسمت الإعلام الذي يحاول أن يصلح نفسه بإعلام العار وتوعدته بأنها ستبيعه وأظن أنكم حتى هنا في أمريكا لا تبيعون أعلامكم العمومي هي توعدتهم بأن تبيعهم وما زالت أمور يعني خصومات قائمة حول وسائل الإعلام افتكت من العائلة الحاكمة وصار للحكومة للدولة فيها نصيب وهناك حديث هناك خصومة حول قناة الزيتون للقرآن حيث نصبت عليها سيدة محترمة ولها كفاءة ولكن خاصمها على القناة شيخ من النظام القديم وغلب السيدة وما زال يواصل يعني إذاعة فتويه يعني المتخلفة وفوجئت هذه السيدة بأن سمي بدلا عنها شخص وسمع ذلك من الإعلام إذن هذا حد تسميت ولكن هناك أيضا الزجر والعقوبات البدنية جابر شاب من المهدية بدأ له أنه سيمارس حريته على الذات الإلهية وعلى الدين الإسلامي فأنجز إبداعا في هذا الاتجاه لم يعجبني شخصيا وخاصة كما كنت أقول أن هذه المسألة حساسة جدا 
وأنه يجب أن نكون حذرين في استخدام هذه الحرية الجديدة لأنها تمكن أن تنقلب علينا وأن تجعل المجتمع الذي ما يزال محافظا ينحاز إلى الإسلاميين لا لشيء ليس لبرامجهم ولأنه يؤمن بقدرتهم على إدارة الشأن العام ولكن لأنهم حماة الدين ولأنهم حماة الهوية وهذا يحدث مغالطة كبيرة في اللعبة السياسية وفي المسار الديمقراطي إذا أيا كان ذنب هذا الفتاة فإن ذلك لا يجعله يحكم عليه بسبع سنوات ونصف سجنا وقد حكم عليه فعلا بذلك مدير جريدة أخرى جريدة التونسية وقع إيقافه لأنه وضع في الصفحة الأولى صورة امرأة عارية نصف عارية هي ليست عارية تماما يعني هذا نوع من الملاحقات هنالك الضغط على الإعلام الضغط المالي تفليس أقص عليكم قصة قناة الحوار لتحفظاتي على خطها التحريري ولكنها قناة مناضلة منذ وقت بن علي وكنا نتكلم فيها لائكيين وإسلاميين كانت موجودة في باريس وكانت تبث ساعة في اليوم والتونسي يتابعها وخاصة كان لها متابعة كبيرة لقضايا الحوض المنجمي هذه القناة يعني الآن على أبواب الإفلاس وقد قامت مؤخرا بحملة سمتها حملة المعدنوس تعرف المعدنوس يا مترجم حملة المعدنوس يعني باعت يعني ألاف من ربطات المعدنوس لأن لهذا النوع من الخضار قصة وهو أن ابن الوزير النهضوي الحالي وزير التعليم العالي فتح تلفزيونا بينما كان أبوه يقول إنه كان مضطهدا وحرم من عمله فاضطر إلى بيع المعدنوس فإذا لما احتج صاحب القناة قالهم كيف ببيع المعدنوس فتحتم هذه القناة التي تساوي مليارات قالوا له ما عليك إلا أن تبيع المعدنوس فكان ذلك وشاهد المجتمع التونسي بذهول كبير فرط إقبال الناس على حماية هذه الوسيلة الإعلامية حتى لا تغلق قناة الحوار إذا الحريات ليست يتيمة في تونس اطمأنوا إذا في المقابل تجد مثلا لصحيفة الفجر الأسبوعية وهي لسان, لسان حال حركة النهضة الحاكمة في يوم واحد نشرت فيها عشر إعلانات للقطاع العمومي للقطاع العمومي يعني بن علي كان يفعل أفضل على الأقل كان يوزع قليلا على الجرائد الأخرى ويعطي البعض لجريدة الحزب هنالك أيضا الضغوط بواسطة التشويه وبواسطة التهديد صفحات الفيسبوك تعج بسباب الصحفيين الأحرار ومناضلي حقوق الإنسان ولكن هناك أيضا قوائم الموت ورسائل تهديد والأسماء الموجودة فيها جلها من الصحفيين وحتى المرحوم شكري بالعيد الذي اغتيله 
ظني أنا أن معجل بحتفه هو أنه كان كثير الظهور وجميل الظهور في وسائل الإعلام وكان يشد السامعين إذا عندنا قواء موت ولست أدري إن كان هذا يسرني أو لا يسرني فأنا موجودة في هذه القواء هناك التخوين أيضا مثلا تصرح جريدة للحزب الحاكم إنها إنها إن سفير فرنسا قال إن صورة تونس البشعة في الصحافة الفرنسية منقولة عن الصحافة التونسية هذه طريقة في التخوين نعرفها مع بن علي يعني أنتم المعارضون أنتم السبب في ضياع المارشي يعني في ضياع الصفقات التجارية وفي تشويه سمعة تونس وفي تفويت المصالح إلى آخره أمر آخر تعمد إليه النهضة وهي إغراق المشهد الإعلامي بوسائل إعلام جديدة خاصة قنوات تلفزية جاءت لتعزز قنوات الخليجية المتدينة ليس بالمعنى الجيد للتدين ولكن بالمعنى المتزمت ونحن لا نعرف لهؤلاء الناس لا نعرف مصدر تمويل هذه القنوات وهي خارج على القانون تبث من من الخارج لا أريد أن أغادر هذا الحيز قبل أن أذكر بقضية سامي الفهري أنجح قناة تلفزية في تونس هي على ملك شاب خلاق مبدع كان متعاونا مع أصهار بن علي فسمح له بالبث ولكن لما بدأ يتبنى الحرية وصارت القناة الأكثر مشاهدة زوجه في السجن من أجل فساد المالي وانت أفرز وحدك يعني هل هو فساد مالي أم لكي, لكي تخنق القناة ولكي يضيق عليها حتى تغلق أو تبيعها لأن نصفها على ملك الدولة وإلى الآن لا أدري كيف أعتبر سامي الفهري هل هو سجين رأي أم هو سجين تطهير البلاد من الفساد وهذا لا أعتقده لأنك بالمقابل تجد قناة أخرى اسمها حنا بعل نشأت في ظروف بن علي ومالها أيضا غير معلوم المصدر وصاحبها ألقي عليه القبض لليلة واحدة في السجن واتهم بالخيانة العظمى ثم وقع التراجع في كل هذا والآن هو وقناته يعيشون في أمان ولكن الضريبة هي تأييد هذه القناة الواسع والعريض لحزب النهضة الحزب الحاكم في البلاد الآن أريد أن أحدثكم عن معضلة اسمها هيئة العليا لإصلاح الإعلام السمعي والاتصال هذه هو الإسلاميون مع الأسف وأظن أرجو أن يراجعوا أنفسهم تنكروا لمن دافع عنه وتنكروا لأصدقائه وتنكروا لهيئة الانتخابات التي أوصلتهم إلى الانتخابات وللرجل الذي كان يقودها وهو كمال جندوبي وتنكرت أيضا لهذه الهيئة فضربت عرض الحائط بتوصياتها وهي توصيات مهمة جدا 
ورفضت أن تطبق القانون أو المرسوم يعني الذي أنجزه خبراء بعد استشارات كبيرة واستئناس بآراء البلدان التي وقع فيها ثورات وانتقال إذن وتحول يعني في المجال الإعلامي ورغم ذلك تتعنت يتعنت الحزب الحاكم في تبني هذه القوانين ويقف بالذات عند القانون 116 المرسوم 116 و115 لانه ما يعدلان المشهد الاعلامي وخاصه 116 يوصي بتكوين هيئه لتعديل لتعديل المشهد السمعي البصري حتى يصونه من التجاوزات وحتى يسمح له بخلق بيئه انتخابيه سليمة وأفضل من البيئة الانتخابية السابقة ثم أيضا حصى أخرى في المكينة وهي الفصل 53 من مرسوم 2 نوفمبر 2011 هذا لا تريد النهضة أن تعترف به وضربت به عرض الحائط يعني عمليا حتى في الانتخابات هذا المرسوم ينص على عدم استخدام المساجد في تمرير أي خطاب من شأنه أن يؤثر على الوضع العام ونحن رأينا خلال الانتخابات وإلى الآن الأمر ما زال يتواصل هناك يعني رسائل انتخابية سياسية تلقى من على منابر المساجد وهناك أسوأ هناك دعوات للانتقام ودعوات للقتل في شأن من ينادون بالحرية والديمقراطية أختم بأنه لا قبل الختام بقليل صبرا جميلا يا أخ نجيب هم ليسوا وحدهم في هذا في الحقيقة ليست حركة النهضة ولا الأحزاب الحاكمة الوحيدة التي يعني تحاول السيطرة على الإعلام أو تضر المشهد الإعلامي هناك أيضا أشياء في الإعلامين أنفسهم منهم ناس قابلون للبيع دائما أنا أقول قبل أن نكون لنا صحافة حرة يجب أن يكون عندنا صحافيون أحرار مع الأسف وأظن أن هذا منتشر في كل العالم ليس كل الصحفيين أحرار هناك من يقبلون بالديل يعني من يقبلون بالصفقات كذلك هناك ضعف الخبرة ونوع من النزق ونوع من عدم الإحكام التصرف في المشهد الإعلامي الآن بعض المواطنين صاروا يموتون رعبا من بعض البلاتوات لأنهم يرون فيها عراكا يعني فظيعا يعني ويحسون كأن صفارات الإنذار عما قريب ستبدأ فيه ويسارعون لإعداد البطاطين يعني والذهاب إلى المخابئ لأن الإعلامي لا يسيطر على مشهده ولا يحسن اختيار ضيوف ولا يحسن يعني تركيبة المفيدة يعني هذا يمكن أن ينفر المشاهد سأختم بسؤال أحرار إلى متى هذا في الحقيقة ليس كلامي وإنما هو عنوان حملة أطلقتها المنظمة الصديقة للصحافة التونسية مراسلون بلا حدود أطلقتها 
للتنبيه إلى إمكانية التراجع في حرية الإعلام أحاول الجواب عن السؤال وأشكر جميع من يخافون على المسار التونسي من الـ من الـ من الانتكاس وأعترف بأن هناك كثير من العمل ينتظرنا ولهذا نحن ما زلنا نواصل العمل ونواصل الاجتهاد ولكن في المحصلة لا خوف على تونس كان غازي يقول قبلي وسأقول قول لا تخافوا على مسار تونس الديمقراطي لأن في تونس رجالا وخاصة النساء لن تدعنا هذه الفرصة تمر حتى تستثمر لما فيه خير جميع التونسيين وفي مقدمتهم حركة النهضة أشكركم شكرا شكرا Now we'll hear from uh, Dr. Nancy O'Kale. She's a program director at the Freedom House in Washington. She has worked for over 12 years promoting democracy and development in the MENA region and has been focusing in the past two years on the Arab Spring countries, particularly Egypt and Tunisia. She, previously, she worked at the World Bank, with the World Bank, the UNDP, and the Egyptian Ministry of International Cooperation. O'Kale holds a PhD on power relations on foreign aid from the University of Sussex in England. <coughs> and she's, uh, <coughs> when, when she was uh, follow, following her work as a program director in Egypt, she's, been, um, she's one of dozens of activists being prosecuted by the Egyptian authorities as part of a crackdown on independent civil society groups in that country. So, uh, Nancy, it's your turn, please. You will be talking to us about Islamists, the Islamists and women's rights in Tunisia and the need for vigilance. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Nagim, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's very, very difficult to speak after Eric and, and, and uh, Naziha. Uh, you know, such an inspiring um, way of looking at things, and uh, it triggers more questions than answers, which is also always a, a good thing. Well, if you're sitting in this room because of your interest in the region, then you're most probably more than overdosed by the idea of the Arab Spring for the past two years. Is like, are we going to the right direction, wrong direction? Was it a good thing to, to take place uh, or not? Uh, people are talking about optimism and, and pessimism. So for, uh, for that reason, I, I will not add to your burden, and I will try to be as uh, brief as possible. But we'll, we'll not really look at answers, but more looking into the analytical part of like, why are we where we are today? And, and how did we arrive to the situation that we are in today? And what are the indications of which direction are we going? Are we going forward or are we going backwards? So um, as Najib asked, uh, asked me to, to, to talk about the women issues, uh, I, I will just take a, like a quick snapshot of like the status of women in Tunisia today and then look at why and how we arrived to this situation. 
So we have like conflicting signals. I mean, like as as we all know, as you all know, that the uh, status of women in Tunisia is one of the most uh, progressive and advanced statuses in in the Arab world. Uh, they have the most progressive laws and, and family laws in in, in the region. In uh, probably maybe in Africa, um, the women played an important role in the uprising uh, in Tunisia. But at the same time, there are fears that there are now re repression and, and, and signals that there are like she would be sidelined in in the current future, particularly under an, an Islamic dominant uh, led transition. Uh, there were also, I mean, like the, the constitution, uh, I mean, like they're tr trying to like show that there are equal rights for women and, and that, uh, for example, uh, women who are, uh, w parties who are running for, uh, for, for elections should have women on their, uh, on the top of their list, yet not all the parties actually do so. So, I mean, like you see, I mean, like there are like very conflicting and different signals there that shows you, I mean, like whether we're going to the right direction or, or the wrong direction. Unfortunately, a lot of the progress that is um, associated to the women's status is attributed to the Ben Ali regime. And sometimes this is used by the current uh, parties who wants to take the women's status into a different direction, which just try to look at women's rights as a legacy of the dictatorship or, or the old regime. And, the, and this negative association is extremely problematic. But before we jump into glorifying the Ben Ali time or, or dooming the, uh, condemning the Al-Nahda party or, or, or the, the Islamic domination, um, uh, stay, I mean, like, view on women, we need to look at how and why we arrived into, in, into this. And we need to look at, in order to do that, we need to look at women issues through two lenses. First, through the overall societal context of power dynamics in the country. And second, through understanding what are the drivers of change. And are they top-down? Are they broad-based? Are they long-term? Are they shockwaves? So in order to be really, un to understand it, take a deeper look into the situation and assess it properly, we need to look at it into, through these lenses. So um, the best way, I mean, to show you uh, why we need to look at women issues as part of an overall societal issues, not just a particular isolated problem on its own, uh, I think the best way is to just through the story of uh, an incident that happened uh, by the end of the last year, uh, I believe, when uh, a young woman was with her fiance in the car, the police stopped them, they grabbed her out, and they raped her three times. Uh, the outcome of the investigation, uh, instead of indicting the, the, the policeman, is that the woman was charged with indecency. Of course, I mean, the immediate reaction would say, I mean, oh, this is, oh, people would reminisce at the time of Ben Ali, and you see, I mean, like now the Islamic-led government uh, or traditional government is repressing women. But actually, the surprise is that these incidents happened several times under the Ben Ali regime. And this is not a story, but no one talked about it. But this is, this is not a story about a repression of women. This is a story of a police state, uh, a story of a culture of impunity, a story of a lack of equal rights for everyone. 
So this is how we need to understand that women issues are not a separate isolated issues. Actually, in Tunisia and Egypt, both men and women were raped in police stations when no one were able to talk about it. I mean, like sometimes the story would be leaked because of like whistleblowers and everything, but the, 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 the situation was that they were happening, but they were not talked about and, and they were repressed. And they were happening again for, for both men and women. What kind of men and women who are subject to these um, atrocities, of course they are not the ones who are related to the, 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 like the royalty or the dictators at that time. They're usually poor. So it's, again, I mean, looking at it as an issue of power dynamics in the country, looking at it as the people who are vulnerable, I mean, and, and whenever there is a repression in a country, the people who get the shock the most are those who are uh, in, a, in a marginalized position. So we're talking, not just talking about women, we're talking about women, youth, the poor, and religious minorities. So, I mean, it's important to look at it in, 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 in this context. Then uh, this means that in order for women to get their rights, I mean, we should be looking into walking on a transitional f uh, uh, path that uh, puts rule of law and, and, and equal rights of the issue of citizenship more than the rights of women as the focal point of, of, of the issue. And then we come to the issue of the drivers of change and when the question of how change happens and how did we arrive at a state where the time for, 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 uh, for women's status at the time of Ben Ali was a glorified time. Uh, was it because, I mean, like there, this, this was a good thing or, or a bad thing. But before we, we get into, into this discussion, I just need to like demystify two conceptions about the idea of drivers of change. Uh, we always talk about change agents or driver of change with a positive connotation, which is not always true. I mean, like there are negative drivers of change and there are positive drivers of change. And also there is a myth about the ability of drivers of change as a, as a trigger. Just remember uh, when people always glorify the myth of Rosa Parks. I mean, like getting into the bus one day and saying, no more day where I am not going to be treated in the same way as any white person. It is, it is mystic, mythical, and it, but also it's inspiring to, to see this, this, this agent of change. But this is not... Um, the change didn't happen out of the blue and because she stood up there and, and, and made a point, but because of an accumulations of years and years and efforts, it come together to that point when she were able to stand up and say so and people listen to her. So, I mean, it is important to, to, to really, really take into account the, the effect and impact of um, agents of change. Then we, we look at the question of how do these agents of change actually get the effect that is needed and sustain that effect. In order to do that, you have two things to deal with. You have tools and you have a social space. And with the issue of women, for example, you have the laws. I mean, the, at the time of uh, Ben Ali, for example, when you use the laws as the tools to affect change, it, is, it has two, um, two characteristics. It is superficial. It's oppressive, and it's very short-lived. So, for example, well, Ben Ali, for example, was banning uh, the veil in, in, uh, in, in public institutions and, and universities. As long as the sponsor of this rule and law is removed from power, 
things change. So it's not sustainable. By the same talking, it, it, it can be also the same by the issue of checking the boxes and just putting law to appear to be democratic or to appear to be progressive. For example, in the same talking as, uh, for example, in another party, like asking for having women to be on the list of uh, of the parties. But in reality, what happens is that we need to, to also look at what type of women are there. Are they women who are advancing women rights? I mean, like, there are 49 women out of 217, I think, now in the Constituent Assembly. Only seven of them are secular. So, I mean, like, it is very important to see, I mean, like, it's the same actually in, in, in the Egyptian parliament, although, I mean, like, we have, like, only four women in, in, in the parliament. But, I mean, the women who are there, they are not speaking for uh, the, the advancing the freedoms and rights of women. In fact, actually, the, the, the one, the most prominent of them, is calling for a decriminalization of female genital mutilation a war that we have fought for a long time in Egypt before in order to criminalize female genital mutilation. And here we are, we have a woman, we check the box, we have a law that put, like, or, or a rule to put women or have a quota for women in parliament, but this woman is not really representing uh, the rights of women, is not advancing the rights of women. So it's very important to, to know that it is not just by rules and law as a tool that you can make the change. And if you do impose the change, you either impose it by the police force or, or the security force, or you do it by laws that are not that are very short-lived and uh, lived and not have the, the effect. For the effect to take place, you have you need to work on the structural imbalances that are leading to these, I mean, inequality in the society. And by that, for example, you can have women, uh, can, the Nahda party like claim for, for example, is like we're not gonna like ban women from working and they have the right to work, but as long as there are like structural imbalances for income inequality, for the safety of women in these places, it's not, it's not gonna happen. You can say, I mean, the street is for everyone. Women can go out and, and, uh, and protest in the street, but as long as, as soon as they go, they get harassed and raped. I mean, this, this is an imbalance. It's exactly, I mean, people, I mean, like sometimes, well, like, social ideas are more, um, Demonstrated better when you when you turn it into a, a physical idea. For example, it's like if Johns Hopkins University uh, prov uh, put a disclaimer that they provide equal rights for all students, even students with disability, to attend the school, but they never have elevators in, on campus. So that is, I mean, like you're allowing it, but you have a structural barrier that does not really make it happen. So, so that's, that's the issue. You can say that women can have uh, and participate in the political life and then hold all your meetings at 10 p.m. at night. That is a structural barrier. I mean, so the idea is in order to have the change taken effect in a society, you need to create an equitable space that allows everyone to participate into this space. And this is only a first step, and necessary but not sufficient, because there is another step that you need to work on uh, the, the consciousness of society or the, the culturalization of society by the means of education and the me by means of media. As long as you, I mean, you, have, you, you, you provide the opportunity, you put the laws, but then 
there you have a tool, a very powerful tool in your hands, this is the media, and you have the education, tells you otherwise, like, and condition the people to believe otherwise it's not going to work. As long as the soap operas in that the people look at and absorb every day without notices in, noticing in their subconscious is representing the woman in the workplace always having an affair or the class in uh, uh, that you have to learn Arabic language, well, the, the first lesson is the, the mother is cooking in the kitchen and the dad is, is, is coming from work. I mean, this is just the, the essentialization of what role and what respectful and was expected from, from the women. This is something that does not... I mean, happen by uh, enforcing law or not from banning women for running from crime. But no one would take any woman seriously when day after day this is what is fed and, and understood through and, 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 and given to uh, the society through a, the, a powerful tool as the media and also uh, through, uh, through, through education and most importantly the most authoritative figures are clergymen through the mosque and through the teaching of religion. So in order to um, really have this change, we need to work in these issues and ask ourselves these like, difficult questions. I mean, like, how can we really create that change? First, introduce it and be serious about it and really ask, I mean, like, how can we work on the media, the religion, the religious institutions, and also education? And this will only happen, it cannot again happen, as just, just as the women issues are cannot be dealt with as an isolated issues. This issue of like change cannot be dealt with away from human rights and away from also the issue of freedom of the media and freedom of expression. And, and that would be based on more on standards and, and, and principles rather than ideologies. And I, I think, I believe, this is the only way that we can assess and, and promote women's rights and human rights in general. Well, thank you very much. Now it's uh, time for questions and answers. Thank you. On the uh, the question of the superficiality of social change uh, induced from above, it is uh, are the reports true that were carried? in the American press, in the revolution, and if so, what does it mean? That the original fruit seller in Sidi Bouzid uh, 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 performed the suicide, the self-immolation, as a result of being humiliated by a female police officer. question was, is it true or not? Or what is, is it true? And if so, what does that mean? About, uh, is it true? And if so, what does that mean about uh, the extent of changed power relationships after all of the decades of exemplary human rights for women? Okay. Uh, who wants to uh, answer? Uh, Shukran. Uh, Nazia. Okay. Uh, 
قصة محمد البعزيزي رواها تقارير أمريكية وغير أمريكية وهي قصة حقيقية وهو صدام بين هذا الشاب وبين مسؤول عن الشرطة البلدية ومعروف عنا كثير الانتصاب الفوضوي الأعمال الصغيرة يبشرها الشباب العاطل عن العمل وهم دائما في صراع مع مع السلطات البلدية بقي هل صفعته هل أحرق نفسه لأن أمرأة صفعته ظني وأنا أعرف سيدي بوزيد جيدا ظني أن الحرقة التي يحس بها الناس في ذلك المكان المنسي ومثلها جهات كثيرة كانت ستدفعه إلى ذلك تلك الحركة حتى ولو كان الصافع رجلا لأنه كان إحساس بالقهر وإحساس بالذل وإحساس بأن الدولة عوض أن تعين هذا الشباب وتأخذ بيده فلا تتركه حتى يباشر ويسترزق من الأعمال الصغيرة بقى هناك شيء هذه سيدة قالت أنها لم تصفع البعزيزي والمحكمة حكمت لها بالبراءة اعتقادي أن قصة البعزيزي ليست إلا شرارة يعني ليس البعزيزي ليس, ليس الثورة التونسية البعزيزي كان شرارة في حطب جيف ومتراكم وهو حطب الغضب التونسي والقهر الذي تراكم لسنوات ثم جاءت هذه العود ثقاب فاشتعل شكرا شكرا Thank you. شكرا أود أن أتفاعل لا أن أطرح سؤال مع الورقة المهمة التي قدمتها الأستاذة نانسي حول مسألة وضع المرأة بصفة عامة وإن سمحتم أتفاعل شيئا ما مع السؤال الذي طرح الآن رد الفعل الذي سمعناه الآن حول أن محمد بعزيزي أحرق نفسه لأن امرأة سفعت هي حكاية نريد أن ننزع تونسية الثورة صبغتها التونسية هذا أمر لا يدور بخلد أي تونسي بأنه يأتي على حرق نفسه لأن امرأة سفعت أعطيك دلائل سريعة بعد ذلك بعد الثورة إن كان الكلام صحيح لما تأكد ما سأقول مثلا منظمة الأعراف وأنتم تعرفون حتى في الولايات المتحدة أن مجال أرباب العمل هو مجال ذكوري بالأساس أن مؤتمر منظمة الأعراف التي كانت طوال كل نصف قرن من الحكومات يحكمها رجال انتخبوا امرأة على رأسهم لما وضعنا قانون الانتخابات لانتخاب المجلس التأسيسي وضعنا قاعدة التناصف في الترشح للانتخابات وقال لنا الجميع لن تنجحوا في ذلك لأنكم لن تجدوا النساء بالقدر الكافي لتقديمهن تقدمت وأظنها انتخابات تاريخية من هذه الناحية 1300 قائمة وكلها متناصفة اليوم المجلس التأسيسي التونسي نسبة النساء فيه هي 
بدون كتا سمعت الأستاذ مطار هذا الصباح تحدث عن الكتا أنا ضد الكتا ولكن اليوم بينا أن بحركية المجتمع لسنا نحن لسنا في حاجة إلى الكتا وأننا غلبنا الحزب الإسلامي فينا لأننا فرضنا عليه أن يفرز نساء تقدنه وهو لم يكن الأمر بقانون الانتخاب فنحن نتونس الحركة الإسلامية لا الحركة الإسلامية ستؤسلم تونس هذه مسألة غير تروح هذا تفاعلي السريع بالنسبة لمسألة الورقة التي قدمتها الأستاذ نانسي كيف أتصور الأمر الآن أن الدولة التونسية بحكم قيادتها الأولى بعد الاستقلال يعني سنة 56 والسنوات التي بعدها جاءتها قيادة يعني ما يسمى بالفرنسية ديسبوتيزم إكليري يعني متسلطة ولكنها مستنيرة شيئا ما بأن وضعت قانون المجلة الأحوال الشخصية وحررت المرأة في جانب كبير فنحن حكاية بلد تحرر المرأة فيه هو بفعل الدولة المتسلطة فما مطروح علينا اليوم في الثورة هو أن نستوعب هذا الذي هو اليوم خاصية المجتمع التونسي وأن ننزع عنها يد الدولة فمسارنا ومخاضنا وصراعنا هو أن يستبتن المجتمع اليوم مكانة المرأة والمساواة وتحرر المجتمع دون الدولة كذلك الذي يلعب يمشي على الحبل في السرك ونضع له شباك من تحته لو سقط فهنالك شباك حتى لا يسقط الشباك من قبل كانت الدولة المتسلطة اليوم نزعنا الشباك وعلينا أن نسير دون أن نسقط ليتمثل لي هكذا أمامنا البرهان بأن مجتمع عربي إسلامي يمكن أن يفرز دولة ديمقراطية هذا اقتناعنا هذا نضالنا وهذا الذي سنصل إليه بصعوبة ولكن سنصل إليه هذا انتباعي على ورقة الأستاذ نانسي شكرا thank you do you want to comment yes please <coughs> إذا شكرا تعقيب على مداخلة الأستاذة نزيهة والأستاذة نانسي فقط في خصوص حقوق المرأة، أعتقد أن الربيع العربي عندما جاء إلى تونس وإلى البلدان العربية الأخرى جاء ليصحح أوضاعا قديمة، فأقول أن حرية المرأة في تونس ليست مقترنة فقط بدولة الاستقلال هي مرتبطة حتى منذ القديم أعطيك مثالا واحدا عندنا في تونس هناك مثال ما يسمى بالزواج القيرواني الزواج القيرواني يعني أنه في نهاية القرن الأول الهجري أو في بداية القرن الثاني الهجري كان في القيروان وهي كانت عاصمة الإسلام الأولى في شمال إفريقيا كانت في القيروان هناك ظاهرة تسمى الزواج القيرواني وتعني رفض تعدد الزوجات وأذكر أعطيك مثالا أن الخليفة العباسي المنصور لما انتقل إلى القيروان تزوج بامرأة اسمها أروى القيروانية وهذا الخليفة أراد أن يتزوج بثانية لأنه مشرقي وفي المشرق مسموح بتعدد الزوجات فعندما ذهب إلى القضاة قالوا له لا يجوز لك ذلك ذهب إلى علماء الدين قالوا له لا يجوز لك ذلك وبقي الخليفة المنصور لم يتزوج بثانية إلا بعد وفاة أروى القيروانية يعني ذلك أن تقاليد حقوق المرأة هي في التاريخ الإسلامي وفي منطقة شمال أفريقيا وفي تونس بالتحديد كانت لها بعض الأثر ففقط 
بعد يعني ما ما قام به السلفيون الان هو يعني السلفيه او الفكر السلفي في تونس هو ينتمي للفكر الوهابي وهو فكر نستطيع ان نقول لا يتبع ولا ينتمي الى الاسلام لوكل وبالتالي فاعتقد ان بقائه او هذا التطرف سوف لن يبقى طويلا لان التقاليد التاريخيه في هذه المنطقه تؤكد على احترام حقوق المراه وشكرا شكرا Thank you for reminding us that in the history of Tunisia, there is a history of monogamy for a long, many centuries that we should rely on now today. Uh, just yes. to comment, I mean, and clarify, I completely agree with you. It was it was not me who <coughs> are associating the progressive laws to to the Ben Ali regime. It is the Islamists or whoever wants to reverse those laws, try to sell it to people and package it as a legacy of a dictatorship in order to make people reject it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way of doing it. Not that I, I believe or, or think that it is actually a product of that. But it actually, I mean, I hope I'm optimistic as you are that, that things will not be <laughs> Islamicized or going that. And remember, uh, 20 years ago, people were saying, in, in, or, or a little bit more than 20 years ago, people were saying is like, well, Pakistan will never be Islamicized. We're like a hubbly-wubbly society. I mean, we love our drink, we love our dance, and we're not gonna be like, we're not like the other countries around. We're not gonna be affected by this Islamicization. I just don't undermine the, 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 the effect of the small doses of sustainable changes that in turn, over time, change society. And this is important just for people to be alert, mm -hmm. not saying that it's going to be that way, but just to keep in mind, I mean, the situation Absolutely. that's happening. And, and women are vigilant in Tunisia. Excuse <laughs> me. Uh, you wanted to add something very quickly, Lokh Nazir. Tunis, كان عندها إرث إصلاحي يخص حرية المرأة وحقوق المرأة وبمناسبة تعدد الزوجات يعني تذكرت الزواج القيرواني حتى تعدد الزوجات لم يكن أمرا شائعا في تونس كان حكرا على بعض العائلات الموسرة لأن التعدد يعني هو مظهر مظاهر الثراء وربما في حالات العقم يعني أسطورة تعدد الزوج أنا لم أولد أمس وأعرف في عائلتي لا أذكر أني رأيت حالات يعني عدد يذكر أو مهم بشأن تعدد الزوجات إذا حقوق المرأة في تونس يعني وهناك من اشتغل عليها حتى قبل بورقيبة ولهذا لما جاء بورقيبة استطاع أن يمرر الإصلاحات دون أن يلقى معارضة شديدة يعني من المجتمع ومن كل العلماء لأن هناك علماء عارضوا شكرا شكرا over there the lady behind you and after you behind him yeah I just want to say also to Nancy I think you did you did say first of all you said that yes the Islamists associate the women's gains with the repressive regime of Ben Ali but you also asserted that when laws are passed under repressive rules, they don't stick right later on. 
that was an assertion that came from you, Nancy, not from the Islamists. And I want to say that there's a, di a different and a better way of putting the point, which is um, there is no <coughs> doubt in my mind that the, the laws passed in Tunisia has had a material effect on the lives of women in Tunisia. This is why we, when we look at Tunisia, when we look at the women's movements in Tunisia, we really note a difference in Tunisia on the feminist movement there, their enunci its enunciation seems to be far more sophisticated. The social base behind the gain seems to be much broader. The way women appear in public space is distinctly different than in any other country, particularly Egypt. Um, you really feel that the laws have transformed at least the urban middle classes of Tunisia and created big bases of not only women but also men who support the gains. In other words, the laws have acquired a life of their own that they exist as a current political ideology. I know you don't like ideologies, you like principles and standards. I love ideologies. And, and this is why they actually constitute a serious movement, and you don't want to mess with Tunisian women. I mean, you mess with any women in the Arab world, but hey, not Tunisian women, right? Sure, there are counter-movements against that, but they're there, and they'll let you know of it. Well, in Thank Egypt, you. We, we always have a saying, it's like the answer is Tunis. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> we have a, the, this Thank gentleman you. here, and then you. Yes. Uh, hi, I'm Mike Payne from the uh, Project on Middle East Democracy. I wanted to jump back for a minute on to uh, we were talking about sort of roles of judiciary um, and sort of problems with that coming through. Uh, and I've, in, in some of uh, Mr. Goldstein's uh, comments as well as some things that I've been reading recently, how uh, new uh, transitional justice stuff and uh, new rules of the judiciary, uh, there's some opposition to sort of standards right now, both from international observers and some of the judges and lawyers and stuff in uh, Tunisia. And so I was sort of wondering, you know, from Human Rights Watch perspective or from international observers, you know, what are maybe some of the things that you'd like to see, uh, some of the specific things to, to sort of bring uh, the level of sort of ch uh, the judiciary in uh, the new constitution, some, bring those up to some of those international standards. Um, and then also, uh, when you were talking about that sort of learning curve, uh, that the judiciary is sort of going through. You know, maybe what are some of the things do you think that uh, the Tunisian government, either now in transition or when a new one is then uh, elected under a new constitution, you know, what are some steps that maybe a new Tunisian government can take to help the judiciary sort of move along that, that learning curve a little bit faster in order to, to really bring forward some real change? Thank you. This is a question, obviously, for you. Uh, but I would like to maybe build on your question and and add the following, yes, and, and Razi too. Uh, there is a, <clears throat> there is a, uh, many observers uh, say that there is, a, there is a reluctance on the part of Anada to reform the judiciary, to come out with a judicial reform, and that I prefer to keep it that way for now, using it, because it's very dependent, it's not independent, for their own benefit. Same thing with the security sector. Uh, you know that, the, I don't know, the UN, UNDP has uh, a program on uh, security sector reform, for example, or the OECD, the European Union, and they went throughout the world in many developing countries helping them reforming their security sectors. <coughs> Make the, uh, the cops less uh, 
aggressive, more, more, more respectful of human rights, of legal procedures, and so on and so forth. And it's not happening in Tunisia. We've never heard about anything. Um, the judicial reform, the, the same thing. It's still the, 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 the sector is still, I mean, the judges are very dependent. They depend on the Minister of Justice. Um, they, uh, they've been demanding independence for, for a long time, but they're not getting it. So this is what I would add to his question, if I may. And I think you and Razi can answer, maybe? Yeah. The gentleman. Did yeah. you hear the question? <coughs> Yeah, okay. I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to, if I put you on the spot, but uh, the gentleman from uh, the Project on Middle East Democracy was asking what priorities there might be in, on the judicial reform agenda. What should be in the Constitution? And beyond the Constitution, what priorities would you uh, advocate to uh, help the judiciary in Tunisia evolve? Microphone for who has the mic around there? We want the mic. No, no, c'est très bien. بالنسبة للسؤال حول إصلاح القضاء ما هي الأولويات وبماذا يجب أن نبدأ؟ سؤال صعب جدا لأن كل كل ظرف له خصوصياته ويمكن أن نفكر في أمثلة نجحت ويمكن أن نفكر في أمثلة لا تنجح ونحاول أن نقتبس منها المهم وكنت أتحدث مع أم زياد في الطائرة ونحن قادمون أن أولا هناك مناخ سيء للإصلاح حول القضاء وغيره وأن هناك اليوم محاولة للاستعمال السياسي وأقول السياسي والحزبي لخطاب الإصلاح وكنت أحدثها عن كلمة هو أنني أرى أن أكبر الفساد هو الفساد في الإصلاح يعني أن اليوم مثلا وذكرت أنت في ورقتك أن وزير العدل بصفة أحدية نزع 81 قاضي من دون أن يقول لنا كيف ما هي المعايير ومنظمتك طلبت يعني تبيانا لذلك قال لا باسم باسم المعطيات الشخصية وحمايتها وهي مسألة مضحكة اليوم في تونس فمثلا أن نطلب اليوم شفافية في معاقبة القضاة الذين أذنبوا هذا أول شيء وهي بدغوجية ضرورية للإصلاح ولكن كذلك أن لا يحاول كل طرف أن يستغل هذا الإصلاح اليوم لمصالح السياسية والانتخابية القادمة هذا من ناحية ومن ناحية أخرى مسألة كتابة الدستور والتوازن في القضاء واستقلال القضاء في الدستور هذا أمر اليوم يعني فيه نقاش كبير ولكن عموما حتى لا أطيل على السادة المستمعين عموما النص ليس سيء كثيرا مشروع الدستور حول هذه النقطة قابل للتحسين ولكن يمكن أن يكون أرضية طيبة ولكن لا أؤمن بأن دستور طيب يعطينا حياة ديمقراطية يجب المناخ يجب العقلية يجب وسائل الإعلام والصحافة وكل هذا هو مثلا بتقديم ورقة سيد رجيبة مثلا رأيتم مناخ الإعلام 
بورقات أخرى رأيتم بنخات أخرى وبالتالي كل المسائل اليوم يجب أن تصلح في ذات الوقت وهو ما يجعل الصعوبة وما يجعل اللخبطة أحيانا ولكن أنا مرتاح لما سيصل إليه الدستور في مسألة القضاء لكن لست مرتاح في المسار الحالي حول الإصلاح القضاء أو نسبية إصلاحه الآن Um, in response to your question, I want to add one thing, which is what I work on most, which is uh, criminal cases, and this applies to Tunisia as it applies to Morocco, as to so many other countries. Uh, in criminal cases, um, most of the time, it's the uh, statement to the police that rules. That's what's in the file, the confession of the person or the statement made by one person about his alleged accomplice. And the police usually don't have anything else on the person. And then the judges will convict on the basis of this confession, regardless of the efforts by the defendant to repudiate that confession by saying, I was tortured, I was forced to sign without reading, and so forth. And that creates a synergism between the police and the justice system. Because if the judges started looking at these files and said, sorry, I can't, acquit, I can't convict this guy because that's all, the, that's all that's in the file, then the police will start having to do the kind of police work that police are supposed to do, um, whether it's finding witnesses or finding forensic evidence or wiretaps if appropriate and so forth. But right now, most files are basically uh, these statements. And as I told you, when I interviewed prisoners, not, you know, almost none of them had read what they had been what they had signed in, in, when they were in police custody. So that's just one small aspect of, of judicial reform, is to train judges when they have these defendants before them, say, this is what you signed. Did you actually say these things? Are you sure? And so forth. Because they did all this outside the presence of their lawyer. But judges don't do that. They just, you know, what's your name? All right, click. And then, then it becomes too late for them to try to walk back from what's in that signed statement. And that's just a machine that we see in Tunisia, we see it in Morocco as well, and many other countries. Thank you. But, but my question was also, is, is there any, according to you, do you perceive some willingness on the part of ANADA to reform the judicial system and the security sector, as it should be, as you? Um, again, I would be very interested in what the Tunisians here have to say. But one thing that struck me on my last visit is I was there when Shukri Belaid was assassinated. <coughs> and there was a Nahda demonstration right after the uh, funeral march uh, in, in, to commemorate Shukri Belaid. And at the Nahda march on uh, Main Avenue, there were posters of a policeman who had been killed in a clash, uh, just in a demonstration, um, uh, yeah. the day before. And they were saying, nobody talks about this victim. And it was very interesting to see Anahda, which had been the victims of repression for two decades so the by the police, suddenly holding up a policeman as one of theirs, as, you know, here's a poor, simple man. He's one of us, and we honor him. So there, there is um, an interesting process. I don't think, uh, as I said in my talk, that Anahda has full control of the Ministry of Interior. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sitting there at the level of the ministry, but what goes on inside is many multifaceted and is still in transition. And how about the Ministry um, of Justice? 
Um, I th I, well, I think that that was one of the most contested ministries uh, since the, uh, the election, and we're, I believe we're about to see the departure of the minister. He was one of the most controversial ministers, uh, and it was one of the demands of the, uh, the secular parties that he, he depart. Um, and as uh, Razi just mentioned, there was this episode of dis arbitrarily dismissing 75 judges, which was... Um, you know, one of the, the, the acts that I think precipitated the That's demands for his departure. That's how they used to do years, years, right? Well, I don't know of an incident where they just fired yeah, 75 well, they, judges they, with, you know, for, they, or without giving them a chance to uh, see the evidence against them and appeal through the normal procedures. Um, okay. But I don't know if there are other indications where uh, there was a good faith effort by the Justice Ministry to reform the, minister, the, uh, the, the judiciary during this past year. Are there, is there anything, a bilan positive for the uh, Justice Ministry, anything positive that came out of the past year <laughs> under Haiti? لماذا؟ لأن أولاً لم يقع تدبير لبداية الإصلاح ولا حتى وضع هيكل انتقالي مستقل ماذا فعل الوزير الحالي أحيا هيكلاً وضعه ابن علي وهو مجلس أعلى للقضاء كان على قياس السلطة القديمة وأحيته النهضة لكي تواصل به الحكم وهذا أمر غريب لأن حركة النهضة عانت من تلك الآلة القضائية السيئة ولكن على, يبدو على ما يبدو تأقلمت معها وأقلمتها هذه المسألة الأولى المسألة الثانية أن الآلة القضائية أو الوسيلة القضائية استعملت في بطرق غير معقولة مثلا الحكم الذي ذكرته سيد رجيبة مثلا سبع سنوات ونصف لمجرد كاريكاتور لشاب هذا حكم يعني لم نره من قبل وهو صعب جدا لا يمكن أن ننفي الخلفية الإيديولوجية للحكومة من وراء هذا الحكم وبالتالي هي سيئة على مستوى الهيكلة وأبقت الانتباع أن القضاء لازال أداة من أدوات السلطة التنفيذية ومثال قناة نسمة أن صاحبها هو قريب من النظام القديم ولم يحاسبوه في الأول حاسبوه لما برامج القناة وخاصة برامج نقدية فكهية تهكمت من السلطة وعندها تذكروا أنه صهر أو كان قريب من أصهار بن علي ويعطي الانتباع أن القضاء يسير تحت أوامر السلطة التنفيذية وهذا يعني انتباع التنسيين أنه لم تحدث بعد ثورة في القضاء وينتظروها Um, social media. Uh, it has been given a lot of credit for helping serve as a spark, um, you know, for many of the uprisings across the Maghreb. In terms of the transition, what has its role been, its ability to sustain the transformations that are taking place? Has its role been as crucial, and how important was it even as, I guess, the, the spark or, you know, provocateur, so to speak. Yes. Thank you. Who wants to... Uh, uh, 
بالنسبه الى وسائل الاعلام على الانترنت كانت لبن علي حساسيه كبيره تجاه هذه الوسيله ولذلك كثيرا ما كان يقطعه لما جاء الفيسبوك وراى يعني الاقبال الشديد للشباب التونسي على الفيسبوك حاول مره واحده قطع هذا الفضاء فثارت ثائره الشباب ولم يستطع كانت تلك من اولى الهزائم التي تكبدها في هذا المجال والفيسبوك لعب دورا كبيرا في حشد الشباب للخروج للمظاهرات وليله 13 جانفي وانا في بيتي شبان يعني اولادي واقاربي واعرف التلاميذ والجيران يعني كانت حركه دؤوبه بعد خطاب بن علي خاف الناس ان تنطلي حيلته على على المجتمع التونسي فوقع حشد كبير ليلتها وكان فيسبوك من اكثر المساهمين في هذا ويبدو ايضا للفيسبوك ابطاله ويحتفل بهم في اماكن عديده مثل المدونه لينا بالمهني والصحفيه الاستقصائيه الفريحي يعني الان هي بصدد اخراج يعني ملفات خطيره حول فساد قضايا فساد للحكومه الحاليه وهناك لغط كثير حول نشاط هذه البنت ويقال انه بعد ان انتقلت الثوره من تونس الى مصر صار الشباب التونسي يتواصل بواسطه الفيسبوك مع الشباب المصري ويدله على الطرق وكيف تتفادى الغازات المسيله للدموع وماذا تفعل لكي تهرب من الشرطه الى اخره. ما زال لا اذكر عدد الاشتراكات وهو كبير جدا نسيته في تونس على المواقع الاجتماعيه وما زالت يلعب هذا الدور بدليل ما ذكرته لكم من ان كثير من المدونين يخرجون على الجرائد الالكترونيه وعلى مواقع التواصل كثير من الحقائق المهمه جدا والتي ساهمت كثيرا في توعيه الناس ولا استطيع ان امر هنا دون ان اتحدث عن الفيديو المسرب عن راشد الغنوشي في جلسه هو مجموعة من السلفيين وهو يحاول أن يفهمهم أن أنه لم يحن الوقت بعد لأخذ تونس بالتمام والكمال ولأسلمتها فيقول فيما يقول الجيش ليس مضمونا والشرطة ليست مضمونة والإعلاميون غير مضمونين والإدارة التونسية ملغمة بالإعلاميين بالعلمانيين اذا بهذا بواسطه هذه الفضاءات استطاع الراي العام التونسي ان يكتشف كثير من الحقائق كانت له نقط استفهام حولها وهو يواصل لعب هذا الدور ولكن الحق يقال ولكي يكتمل الجواب يلعب ايضا هذه المواقع ادوار سلبيه جدا من ناحيه يعني نشر الاشاعات تخويف الاهالي وخاصه من ناحيه القذف والثلب وهتك الاعراض مما جعل كثير من الاصوات ترتفع لتطالب بتقنين او محاوله يعني 
ترشيد هذا المرفق وعندنا نائبة في المجلس التأسيسي طالبت مؤخرا بأن يصبح مدفوعا مدفوع بالأجر يعني الاشتراك في فيسبوك لأن الشباب التونسي يتندر عليها كثيرا في الحقيقة هي مضحكة شكرا على السؤال In addition to that, in addition to social media being an alternative channel as, as, as a media space for the, for the state-sponsored media or the, or the traditional media, but it's also another space where the rules of the, games are, of, of the game is different than the actual social space. So in the actual social space, people acquire their authority and power from their position in uh, whether they, they, uh, they are a political reader or they are um, a, a clergy person or, or a professor in academia. And this is what creates the whole power relation of respect. And it was like talking top down and, and no one can respond back. This is not the case in social media. Well, well people can talk freely, you have equal account, you have an equal uh, Facebook account, a Twitter account, and it's like you can totally see this as like how in, in Egypt, like pe uh, people respond to the Twitter feeds or, uh, uh, or tweets of uh, President Mohamed Morsi by mocking him right away, replying to his Uh, to his um, to his tweets. I mean, this may sound funny, but it's, this is really significant because it's bringing down the power relation and dismantling it based on different things. And people say, "It's like I have more followers than the president." So, I mean, so the rules that gives you voice, it gives you this podium, the platform to speak from, is not the same rules that are like governed by different power relations in reality. And this is like I, I think this is a revolution on its own. Is like providing this platform. Of course, it's still limited because, I mean, in our societies, given the, the, the low level of education, uh, literacy rates, in, in the access <coughs> to the internet, of course, limits the ability of how this uh, uh, change in power relation filtered to the rest of the society. But still, it's a very, very significant change looking at it from that perspective. I just want to add one thing. I, like in the United States, uh, the social media in Tunisia is not the exclusive domain of the good guys. It's everybody, every single tendency in Tunisia is there on Facebook, uh, from Salafists all the way to violent anarchists, and they're making death threats and insulting people right and left. It's all out there. So uh, just keep that in mind. Yes? Thank you. My, my name is Joel Teitelbaum. I'm with the Fulbright Association. And I, I just want to say one thing before I ask my question, which is that uh, from what we see here and what I've seen working in Tunisia for many years in my life as both a student and, and a researcher and a professor, this is a highly civilized society, Tunisia. We must never forget its history all the way back. I mean, more than 2,000 years or more, it's always been a civilized society. This is not Libya. A tribal society. This is not Algeria, a wild society. It's a civilized society. And what we are discussing is civilized issues. So my question really is this. Since independence, shows you how old I am, when I went there just after Tunisian independence in the 50s, has anything really changed in the sense of plus ça change, uh, 
plus ares la men. Is it really a big change that we're seeing, or is this just a phenomenon that they're going through? They've had years of dictatorship. Forget Ben Ali for a minute, he was a mess. But Bourguiba was no, no boon to mankind, despite what he claimed to be. He set the scene with his personal power and his, his, his l'état c'est moi sort of statements. I am the state. He said that over and over again. There were no institutions that counted. It was like Louis XIV, a, a, a government within a government. Has that changed in Tunisia? Is there an inside government and then a government of 60 ministers just for show? Or is it really a change to democracy that uh, people are hoping for? It because seems to be on the way, but... Uh, this civilization will not this. go away. It will continue. Not overnight, but well. probably... Who wants to answer? dictator, but وسيمهد للحياة الديمقراطية لأنها محصنة فيما أظن بالتعليم بالانفتاح على العالم تونس ليست بلدا منغلقا أبدا وأظن أنها لن تنغلق أبدا إلا لقدر الله يعني حذف من حوادث التاريخ الفظيعة يعني انفجر أخي شيء يعني عنف أو ولكنه ترك بصمته ثم ثم ذهب وجاءت موجة بن علي هي أيضا ربما أنا لا أريد أن أذكر شيئا جيدا لبن علي كرامتي تأبى علي ذلك كرامتي الشخصية شكرا ولكن حتى هذا الفترة هذه أيضا فترة الإسلاميين هي أيضا موجة وستمر يعني بطريقة أو بأخرى وسوف تسوى الأمور مثلا بالنسبة للإسلاميين وهذا ما كنت أود أن أختم به ورقتي ولكن دهمني الوقت عندما تعامل بن علي مع الظاهرة الإسلامية تعامل معها تعاملا أمنيا لكي يسيطر على المجتمع بالخوف ولكي يسيطر عليها هي بالخوف ولكي يستثمر هذا تحت عنوان مقاومة الإرهاب ويأخذ به صورة جيدة هنا في واشنطن وفي باريس وفي غيرها من العواصم الغربية وخاصة بعد 11 سبتمبر لأنه ضعف كثيرا قبل 11 سبتمبر بن علي أنقذه هذا الحدث الأليم فإذا لما تعامل هذا التعامل الأمني القاسي ومحاكمات وتعذيب وقتل تحت التعذيب وتشريد إلى آخره لم يحسم المسألة الإسلامية بالنسبة لتونس وهو حول هذه المعركة إلى الآن لأن معركة تقاد بين المجتمع وبين هؤلاء الناس لكي يصلح كل واحد منا الآخر ولكي نصل إلى كلمة سواء كما يقول العرب وكما جاء في القرآن فحينئذ هي موشيت ولكن أظن أنها سترسي إلى شاطئ جميل أنا لا أظن أنني أبالغ في التفاؤل لا أنكر المشاكل ولكن لا بد منها كما قلت بن علي رحل هذه المعركة نحن بصدتها أرجو أن لا تدوم طويلا
Shukran, thank you. Any other question? Okay. <laughs> she said we've convinced them. Well, thank you very much for attending and for coming. I don't, I don't think we'll be able to answer the question, can Tunisia be considered an example for the rest of the, the countries of the Arab Spring? I think that I, I don't personally like the Arab Spring appellation too much. I would rather prefer to call it the, uh, uh, there's an Arab awakening. And certainly things won't be the same anymore in the Arab world from now on, especially when it comes to the freedom of the press, freedom of speech. And even if the road is going to be bumpy and difficult, uh, women's rights. Women are also, and they are vigilant. And, and uh, so is civil society in Tunisia and I guess uh, in Egypt. So in spite of the attempts of the Islamists to roll back some women's rights or to control society or freedoms, etc., I think they will, um, it, it, we will have setbacks, but I think we, we're heading towards the good direction, the right direction, towards freedom and democracy. Thank you.